0: Well, certainly I do not hesitate to preach about fathers or mothers when it comes up in the text, <laughs> but this morning we continue our series in Luke's Gospel, and we turn to the sixth chapter of Luke's Gospel once again. What wonderful hymns we have sung. The opening hymn, it is thought by some, the words were written by John Calvin, and the second hymn that we sang, another Augustus Toplody hymn, what great hymns he wrote. Now we've been looking as we've been working through Luke over these last few weeks at Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a shortened version than the version that we have in Matthew. And the Beatitudes are shorter as well. Last week we looked at the Beatitude regarding persecution and came to the end of the Beatitudes. The Lord Jesus now begins to work those beatitudes out to show us the fruit of them and the lives of believers. So we come to Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 27 through 36, which is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, as we now turn to your word, it is with a sense of urgency that this word is read and preached and heard If indeed we understand this is the word that has come from your own sovereign hand to us, your children, and is proclaimed in the world, the world that is rapidly coming to an end, the wrath of God abiding upon it, our need of grace and mercy in Christ, then we should never in a flippant or careless manner turn to your word, but with eagerness, anticipation, and the knowledge that you will accomplish the purpose to which you send your word, and your sovereign grace and mercy and even an awesome consideration, even in judgment. Hear our prayer. Give to us, Father, an eagerness to hear this word and to see Christ on the page. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's word and stand as we read Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 27. This is the word of God. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, I'm sure that you will agree immediately that we come to another one of those passages that simply turns the world's standard on its head. If any of us has fallen into bitterness of heart, this text calls us from it. The text is very searching. It is deeply convicting. And we must not simply tolerate our enemies. The text calls upon us to love our enemies. And this points us to our need of a Redeemer, for this can only happen... By the grace of God. Now it's important to observe that this does not apply to civil authorities who have a responsibility to protect its citizens. A lot of confusion exists about this. This is kingdom ethics for God's people, surely a standard to which all are called individually, but the state has its own responsibility within its sphere that the Lord has ordained for it. The state has received the power of the sword from God, it is to execute justice. It is to take vengeance, but we are called not to take vengeance into our own hands as individuals. It also is important to notice that this section follows upon the beatitude that we saw last week regarding persecution. So, the examples that we find in this section are unpacking especially how we are to treat those who persecute us and who abuse us. Now, the Lord Jesus begins a section in which he says in principle, If you have understood the Beatitudes as my disciples, this then is how you're going to live. If you are my disciple, this will be the fruit that will begin to show in your lives. So let's begin looking at the text by, first of all, seeing the duty commanded, the duty commanded, love your enemy. And it is stated in four different ways. First of all, just like that in verse 27, love your enemy. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. The Dead Sea community was noted for saying, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And evidently, that was the perspective of the rabbis as well. Hate never lacks something to feed upon. D.A. Carson, in his little work on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, makes the statement, To be persecuted because of righteousness is to align oneself with the prophets. But to bless and pray for those who persecute us is to align oneself with the character of God. And so we are called to love our enemies. In verse 27 also, it says that we are to love the ones who hate us. Love those who hate you. My personal treatment of others must not depend upon who they are or how they treat me. Do you remember what we read last week in verse 22? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And now the Lord Jesus says to us, his disciples, we are to love those very people who treat us in that manner. But also we are to bless those who curse us. Again, verse Twenty-eight. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If my love for my enemy is genuine, it will show in concrete ways. Love shows in deeds. It's not passive. It's very active. And we are to pray for our abusers, according to verse 28. Can you think of a greater way, a better way, a more important way to bless those who curse you than to pray for your abusers? Do I, do you sincerely pray for your abusers? Why pray for your enemy? Because it honors God, because our enemy needs it, and because prayer for our enemies reflects the same attitude toward others that the Lord Jesus showed when he was merciful to us when he died upon a cross and cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In Romans 5:10 we read, "For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life." Now we cannot save our enemy as only God himself can do, but we can get upon our knees and we can plead before the Lord to save our enemies and to bring them to salvation. In prayer, we see our enemy's doom. We see where he is going. We see the awful wrath of God under which he finds himself because of his rejection of the Savior and his unbelief. And we also see what we deserved had it not been for the intervention of God's grace in our lives, and we cry out because of these motives for mercy upon our enemies. So, the duty to love my enemy means that I will not have ill will toward him, that I will not take pleasure when ill befalls him. Proverbs 24 17, rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. It means that I wish him well, I wish the best for him, salvation in Christ, and it means that as providence gives to me the opportunity, I do good to my enemy. Galatians 6:10 as we have therefore opportunity let us do good unto all men especially those of the household of faith. Now in this way the Lord Jesus unpacks for us what it means that we are to love our enemies. But he also gives four illustrations regarding our call to love our enemies. One is that we are to offer the other cheek. Verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now, in the ancient world, a chief insult was administered by striking the cheek with the back of one's hand. The point here, then, is simple. Be willing to bear personal insults for the sake of the gospel. First Peter 2.23, when they hurled their insults at him, at Christ, he did not retaliate. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives an illustration in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, which deals with Matthew, not Luke, about the evangelist Billy Bray. He was a Cornish evangelist. He was uh, a British evangelist who had, uh, before coming to faith in Christ, been a pugilist. He had been a boxer. He had been a fighter, and a very good one at that. When he came to faith in Christ and began to present the gospel to others— Someone who hated Billy Bray determined that now is my opportunity, and so he came and he began to hit him and to beat him up. Billy Bray's response to him was, I love you and I forgive you, even though Billy Bray could have knocked him out cold. This man who had done Billy Bray this evil spent many days and nights in agony of soul as the Holy Spirit worked in his life, and he was deeply convicted for what he had done, and because of the response, the Christ-like response that he had received from this evangelist, Billy Bray, and this man came to faith in Christ. Does this force you to take a look at yourself? What do you see? Turn to Romans chapter 12 while keeping your finger in Luke. Luke. And notice what the Apostle Paul says, reflecting these verses undoubtedly in these teachings of our Savior. In Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 19, Romans 12:19, Paul the Apostle says by divine inspiration, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Lord Jesus also gives another example of what it means to show love to your enemy. And all of these, of course, reflect his culture. Give your shirt with your coat also, verse 29, the second part, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So someone sues for your shirt as payment for a debt. You give your outer robe also. Of course, the Old Testament required that this be returned before nightfall, but there was no, no certainty that someone would obey the law of God and do this. The point is we have no right to hate those who have grievances against us. We must love those who have grievances against us. And then he says that we are to give to the beggar, the beggar who even may be your enemy. Uh, Do we turn from those in need whom God in his providence places before us? As Perkins the Puritan said, in the person of the poor, we must consider Christ Jesus and give to them as we would give to Christ. And then he also says, what is taken do not ask to be returned in cases of deprivation. So you see the point, don't you? We are to actively demonstrate our love for those who hate us, despitefully use us, persecute us. We are to love our enemies. And he says, what benefit is this? That is, it is unworthy of the follower of Jesus if, well, let's read verses 32 to 34 again. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Matthew says, tax collectors love tax collectors. Gentiles greet Gentiles. We are called to the opposite of revenge, but rather we are called to love our neighbor, even that neighbor who may be our enemy. Now, of course, Jesus speaks in hyperbole in the Sermon on the Mount. Other scriptures would help us to see, for example, that it's not always wrong to attempt to recover something that has been stolen from you, or to um, to to help someone to see that it's wrong to hit or to take or to mistreat. But get the point: there are times for the glory of God in which it is better to allow yourselves to be wronged. And the point here is the attitude of the heart. It's not always an absolute. When the Lord Jesus, for example, in Matthew says, do not swear at all, we know from the scriptures that there are times when taking oaths we're called upon to do, but get the point of what Jesus is doing. I'm almost reluctant to, to bring a personal illustration Please let me say, God enabled me to do what I needed to do, and it was all of grace. I'm not lifting myself up. I'm exalting Jesus. But in my early ministry, there was a terrible time that I I actually went through in which I was accused of some thoughts, actions that I was completely innocent of. And I could have straightened it out pretty simply by simply saying some negative things about some other people. But I believe that would be wrong to do. And there also were confidences as a pastor that I was required to keep. And so I determined that I would say nothing and leave it in the hands of the one who judges justly. Now, rightly or wrongly, I also said this. You know, I've done a lot of things wrong that those people don't know. I'll just chalk it up to that. That's what Jesus is talking about by grace, using wisdom and discernment to know when it is best, simply to take it on the chin rather than to retaliate or even to call the law. Only grace can teach these things to our hearts. In Luke 6, 32 through 34, did you notice that three times Jesus uses the word sinners? Even sinners do that. He is appealing to those religious people who would think of sinners, for example, as uh, prostitutes or drunkards. Even sinners do that. What Jesus is saying is, you religious people don't even understand that you are the sinners in need of grace. You don't understand grace. Unbelieving Jews brought the law down to their standard. Bitterness grew up like thorns and thistles, and nature cannot root it out. Does this speak to someone here this morning? Bitterness in your heart, and nature cannot remove it, cannot root it out. But disciples of Jesus are noted by their love one to another, but also by loving those who do not love them in return, but even abuse us. Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer, was such a character that he was noted for this attitude. It was said that if you did Thomas Cranmer wrongly, he would be your friend for life. I want to be that kind of person. Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism, one of our Reformation catechisms that actually has confessional status in many reformational churches, reformed churches. It's about the Sixth Commandment, and isn't that what Jesus is talking about here, the Sixth Commandment? What is God's will for us in the sixth commandment asks the catechism I am not to belittle, insult, hate or kill my neighbor not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture and certainly not by actual deeds and I am not to be party to this and others rather I am to put away all desire for revenge I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with a sword. Does this commandment refer only to killing? Answer, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. I wonder, people of God, do we ever give thought to the fact, do we ever consider What if God had taken out his rightful vengeance on me? What if God had said, you are my enemy and you are under my condemning wrath and I am going to take this vengeance and wrath out upon you forever and ever and ever? Where would we be? But He is as good to us as he is to his own son with whom we have union, who died for our sins and treated his enemies as the best of his friends by giving his life for us on the cross. That's the motive underlying what Jesus is teaching to us in this section of Scripture. But secondly, God's example of kindness Verse 35 of Luke 6, God's example of kindness, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. What we are told here is that God gives gifts to the ungrateful and to the evil. He is kind. Psalm 145 verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. To the lost at Lystra, Paul said, God did not leave you without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In Romans 2:4, we read, or do you not presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So God gives common gifts, both to the just and to the unjust. And if the common gifts of God's providence are powerful motives for showing love to our enemies, then redeeming, special, saving love shown to us is even a greater motive. For in verse 36, he says, your father, he is speaking to you who are redeemed, who are saved. He is speaking to you who know him. We were enemies when we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now think on this. What were we when God showed us his love? How estranged we were from God, what awful enemies we were. But God reconciled himself to us through the blood of the cross when we were alienated from him by our sins. And in what way do you and I need to apply this truth this morning? To whom should I be showing kindness that I am not? To whom should I love but I am not? To whom am I withholding my love when I am called to love him? This doesn't mean that you approve of wrong. This doesn't mean that you never take opportunity to point out to this person by speaking the truth to him that what he is doing is contrary to God's word. That is love, when done rightly and appropriately. But it is love for which you are liable to be thought unloving. Speaking the truth in love does not mean that you will be perceived as loving. But then the love to which we are called is strong, not sentimental, and sappy. God's own example of kindness means that I also should show kindness to my enemy. But notice thirdly, love for enemies is a mark of a child of God. When you love your enemy, this is a mark that you are a child of God. Notice verses 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So it's important to understand what this love is that we must show to our enemy. For example, we have imprecatory Psalms Do not be silent, God, or unresponding. You know those Psalms. Do not I hate them that hate thee? In the New Testament, in Acts 8.20, Peter says to Simon, by money perish with thee. Harsh words. In Acts 23, Paul says to the priest, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. In Galatians 1, he calls anathemas curses upon those who do not preach and teach and believe justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. In Revelation 6, the martyrs cry from under the altar, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And they call for vengeance. How do we relate these passages to our duty to love? Well, you may not delight in your enemy, but you want what is good for your enemy. But more than that, you want what brings glory to God And you want what is for the good, ultimately, of his church. All of these things are in the mix of our hearts as we think about this subject. For example, feeling moral outrage when criminals escape human justice is a right feeling. Proverbs 17, 15, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. Or let me give you another example. Say someone breaks in your home. And you protect your family and you overcome him and turn him over to the law. It's right to desire that justice be done. It's right to desire that he not be allowed to do such a thing again. But if you later see him in genuine need, what is your call? Your call is to help him. Because you will begin to understand the gospel in such a way that you can use those old words as your own. There. But by the grace of God go I. That I also, were it not for God's grace, could have done the very same thing. That I also, were it not for God's grace, could have hated my neighbor, could have stolen, could have murdered, could have done that evil and awful thing. How powerful it is when we ask the question, what is it that makes us different than others? And the answer is not that somehow we were better, or we were natively good, or we were unfallen when others were fallen. The answer is God chose to show grace, mercy to my life. That's the only thing that makes me different. It's the only thing that helps me now to love my neighbor and my enemy, even as myself. And so there are many complex motives in the Christian's heart, not easily sorted out. There is a legitimate desire for justice when injustice is done. And at the same time, there is a desire to show mercy because God has been merciful to us. And that's because we live between the times, between the ascension of Christ and his return, But when he returns, he returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel, and justice will be done. Leave it there, leave it in his hands. So you see, Christian, your life and mine must be like a piece of paper. And you take that piece of paper and you hold it up to the light, and there's the watermark. And the watermark that is seen is the watermark of grace and of mercy and of peace. And it should be clearly read by the world when they see our lives. Doing good to your enemy doesn't make you a Christian, but it is one way that your true faith in Christ will manifest itself. George Wishart, the Scottish martyr, kissed his executioner and forgave him before he was executed. Thomas Boston said, Men do not love God truly who cannot love men for his sake. We must love our friends because they love us, but the great trial is in the love of our enemies, where we cannot fetch the arguments for loving them from ourselves, but from God. If we love not our enemies, we are not like God, and if we be not like him, we are not his children. So, this mark is sometimes used to convert the lost, and God uses it to draw them out of darkness into light because they see Christ in you and the way in which you love your enemy. Young people and children, you may not know the name Richard Wormbrand, but your parents do and your grandparents. It's a name you should know. He was a Lutheran minister who was Romanian. And during the communist occupation of Romania, he was treated in such ways that I dare not describe it from the pulpit. It was a truly horrendous, horrible thing that was done to this man. And if you've heard of the Voice of the Martyrs, he is the one who was the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. But in one of his books, he says this. I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communists. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which was poured out in our hearts. Later, the communists who had tortured us were sent to prison too. Under communism, communists and even communist rulers are put in prison almost as often as their adversaries. Now the tortured and the torturer were in the same cell. And while the non-Christian showed hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took their defense, even at the risk of being beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with communism. I have seen Christians give away their last slice of bread. We were given one slice a week. And the medicine that could save their lives to a sick communist torturer who was now a fellow prisoner. Only the love of Christ in the heart can do this. But then fourthly, God's call to mercy is found in verse 36. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. That is, is merciful to you. He's speaking to those who know him as heavenly father. Who we understand God to be and how he has treated us determines how we represent him to others and how we treat others. To put it more pointedly, if we know that the Lord is compassionate to us, gracious to us, merciful to us, loving to us, and really see what we have deserved, that is the catalyst for beginning to love my enemy. The Lord cannot put anything before us but an absolutely perfect standard. And that's why in Matthew he says, Be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. But we are not yet perfect morally. Though we are justified and completely accepted in the righteousness of Christ, morally, we each have a long way to go. We are not yet morally perfect. We do not keep that standard perfectly, do we? But for the Christian, there must be a real, if small, beginning. And we must desire to grow in these things. And somebody here this morning knows that you need to begin with someone against whom you harbor bitter feelings or anger. A refusal, even though you may pray for justice on the one hand, a refusal to show mercy on the other, altogether for God's sake, because that is your heavenly Father's call in your life and in mine. And this keeps me coming to God for grace, to the one who not only taught us to love our enemies, but the one who did it, and did it perfectly upon the cross of shame. As my substitute, loving me, his enemy. Do you really believe that you are a sinner justly deserving God's displeasure and that you are without hope save in his sovereign mercy? Do you really believe the scriptures when they teach that we hated God before he drew us to himself? Do you really believe that you deserved that I deserved his infinite displeasure forever and ever and ever? Do you really believe that you were God's enemy and he loved you and gave himself on the cross for you and poured out his blood for you and not only tolerated you, but loves you completely and utterly and infinitely in union with his Son, with the same love for which he has to Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. Did you notice in verse 27 how Jesus begins? But I say to you who hear... Undoubtedly, there are people in the crowd, Jesus is speaking, and they don't hear. Uh, Possibly this morning, there are those who are here in this service of worship, and you do not hear, because only God can make you hear. The natural man does not comprehend the things of the Spirit of God, because they are spiritually discerned. And if you are in darkness and do not know him, you don't hear it. You may understand the words, but you do not hear it in the heart. To those who hear, to those regenerated, to those who believe, to those who are truly his disciples, he is speaking this morning to those who hear. And he says this, we Christians are to love our neighbors, even our enemy, for God's sake. Everything must be God-centered. Everything we do must be for his glory. You will not be able to pull up motives from within your heart to love your enemy. The motives come from knowing God. The antithesis must be sharp. That is the difference between the church and the world. The Christian and the world must be sharp. And we want everything we do to be guided by God's word. And we want to act out of the principle of regeneration. Even when we are opposed by the world. That they may see that we are born from above. And remember, even when you love your enemy, your enemy may say that you hate him. You do not even share the same standard to determine what love is. No matter. Keep on loving. Want your neighbors good because the Lord has shown you good. Everlasting good. Has he not? The Lord has shown you good, believer. Everlasting good. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. And God's people said, amen.